Originally, I had intended to come to America last year. Lack of money delayed me until early autumn. It was on the day that the Weaver Maiden met the cowherd that I took passage on the President Lincoln. I ate wind and tasted waves for more than 20 days. Fortunately, I arrived safely on the American continent. I thought I could land in a few days. How was I to know I would become a prisoner, suffering in the wooden building? The barbarian's abuse is really difficult to take. When my family's circumstances stir my emotions, a double stream of tears flows. I only wish I can land in San Francisco soon, thus sparing me this additional sorrow here. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochiden. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today begins a two-part series on Chinese immigration in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This episode will focus on the men, and next time I'll discuss the women. As we'll see, their experiences were markedly different and so talking about them separately made sense in my opinion. I'm also going to talk today about Angel Island, the main immigration processing facility on the West Coast from 1910 to 1940. An estimated one million immigrants entered the United States at this location, in the San Francisco Bay, a little over a mile north of the city of San Francisco. It was the point of entry for travelers from Russia, South Asia, Australia, and New Zealand, as well as Mexico and Latin America. Approximately 150,000 Japanese people and 250,000 Chinese went through Angel Island into the United States. In its latter years, the facility received hundreds of Jewish people fleeing Nazi rule in Germany, Austria, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. It was the Ellis Island of the West with a dramatic difference. Lady Liberty welcomed almost all of the 12 million who arrived at her golden door, around 98%. Within two to three hours, having had only a medical screening, Ellis Island arrivals were admitted into the country. But arrivals at Angel Island were detained for weeks and even months. A few were kept there for years. And then almost 10% of them were deported. This was due in large part to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which remained in effect for 60 years. The story of large-scale Chinese immigration to the United States begins in the 1850s. For decades, civil and economic unrest embroiled much of southern China. Most Chinese immigrants came specifically from Guangdong province. The opium wars of the early and mid-1800s took an economic toll. Hundreds of thousands died in ethnic fighting between the Bendi, as locals called themselves, and Kijia, their name for the so-called guest people. The Taiping Rebellion, Red Turban Rebellion, and a civil war claimed millions more lives. Crop failures, famine, and destruction of local industries by foreign imports 
further devastated the region. Meanwhile, American companies advertised job opportunities to entice workers across the Pacific. As is the case with so many mass migrations, the successes of the first few encouraged more to follow. Lee Chu remembers the man who returned to his village from America. I worked on my father's farm till I was about 16 years of age, when a man of our tribe came back from America and took ground as large as four city blocks and made a paradise of it. He put a large stone wall around and let some streams through and built a palace and summer house and about 20 other structures with beautiful bridges over the streams and walks and roads. Trees and flowers, singing birds, waterfowl, and curious animals were within the walls. The man had gone away from our village, a poor boy. Now he returned with unlimited wealth, which he had obtained in the country of the American wizards. After many amazing adventures, he had become a merchant in a city called Mott Street, so it was said. When his palace and grounds were completed, he gave a dinner to all the people who assembled to be his guests. One hundred pigs roasted whole were served on the tables, with chickens, ducks, geese, and such an abundance of dainties that our villagers, even now, lick their fingers when they think of it. He had the best actors from Hong Kong performing, and every musician for miles around was playing and singing. At night, the blaze of the lanterns could be seen for many miles. Having made his wealth among the barbarians, this man had faithfully returned to pour it out among his tribesmen, and he is living in our village now, very happy, and a pillar of strength to the poor. The wealth of this man filled my mind with the idea that I, too, would like to go to the country of the wizards and gain some of their wealth. Chu and five other boys traveled to Hong Kong, where they each paid $50 for steerage passage on a steamer to San Francisco. Many more made the same journey. A 15-year-old J.S. Look arrived in the country in 1882. Forty years later, he recalled disembarking with about a thousand other passengers. Quote, There were so many of us that we had to sleep on the floors as there were not enough beds in Chinatown. End quote. He also writes, quote, We were very poor at that time. Many of the new arrivals had to go around and pick cabbage leaves and vegetables and the culls of fruit at the various commission houses in order to obtain enough food upon which to live. End quote. Eventually, Luke would have joined a Huiguan, one of several mutual aid societies that provided essential services to its members. The men in each Huiguan usually spoke the same dialect and tended to come from the same region in China. In Los Angeles, men from the more urban and better educated population of Guangdong joined the Samyep Huiguan. Members of the Shiyep Huiguan were from the more rural region of Guangdong. In San Francisco, the Huiguan were ruled by the Congress of the Six Companies, also known as just Six Companies, comprised of representatives of each Huiguan. These organizations provided temporary lodging, as well as food, 
and helped members find jobs and adjudicated disputes between members. For a fee of 5 or $6, they nursed sick members back to health. The Huiguan also maintained cemeteries and paid for the burials of its indigent members. And they defended members in court and employed their own private police and watchmen to guard Chinese stores and properties in Chinatown. An 1866 article from the San Francisco Daily Union illustrates their need for protection. On Saturday night last, at a place called Teets Flat, about five miles this side of Folsom on the American River, a company of Chinamen was called upon by a band of robbers and ordered to deliver up their valuables, which order they refused to obey. The robbers then commenced shouting and shot two of the Chinamen, but they were not dangerously wounded. This so frightened the rest of them that they ran away, leaving the robbers to help themselves, which they did and left. On Thursday night, the same Chinamen were again visited by a band of robbers, which probably the same, and ordered to deliver. The Chinamen had become somewhat desperate by this time at being called upon so often and commenced shooting at the robbers, which fire proved too hot for them, causing them to take flight without any booty. The practice of robbing Chinamen is said to be a very frequent occurrence in that locality, as scarcely a week passes without some of them being attacked, beaten, and plundered. On the other hand, the six companies were also accused of facilitating gambling, opium use, extortion, slave trading, and prostitution, which I will discuss next time. The men would eventually find work in mines or on the railroads. They also worked as merchants selling rice, dried fish, tea, opium, silk, and herbal medicines to their fellow countrymen working on the railroads. Others became fishermen, farmers, laundrymen, and domestic workers, which was Li Chu's first job. He earned $3.50 per week, $3 of which he was able to save. He describes the family he worked for as, quote, very good to me, end quote. Incidentally, he also says that the laundry trade, which the Chinese would come to dominate, was not learned in China. Quote, there are no laundries in China. The women there do the washing in tubs and have no washboards or flat irons. All the Chinese laundrymen here were taught in the first place by American women, just as I was taught. End quote. American clothes, quote, looked very funny to us and we all laughed at the way the Americans dressed, end quote. I doubt very much that they laughed in the Americans' faces. As they walked around the city, Luke recalled, quote, American boys would throw rocks at us, end quote. Initially, at least some white Americans cheered the new arrivals. On May 12, 1851, the Daily Alta, California, reported, Quite a large number of the Celestials have arrived among us of late, enticed thither by the golden romance that has filled the world. Scarcely a ship arrives that does not bring an increase of this worthy integer of our population. It goes on. They are the most industrious, quiet, patient people among us. Perhaps the citizens of no nation except the Germans are more quiet and valuable. They seem to live under our laws as if born and bred under them, 
and already have commenced an expression of their preference by applying for citizenship by filing their intentions in our courts. I found this line rather astonishing. The disciples of Confucius are coming and have come to qualify his philosophy with the wisdom of Washington and the utility of Franklin. If I read that right, the author considers Confucius on par with Washington and Franklin. Is that how you read it? And then the writer predicts all of the ways that the, quote, China boys will assimilate into American culture. Gradually, their wooden shoes give way to the manufacturers of Lin and kindle a fire for barbecuing a rat dinner. The long queue eventually passes away before the tonsorial scissors and stuffs a saddle or is woven into a lariat. There will be more changes in his dress until... The chief distinction consists in the copper color, the narrow, angular eyes, the peculiar gibberish and beardless faces. Finally, the China boys will yet vote at the same polls, study at the same schools, and bow at the same altar as our own countrymen. As the gold rush subsided, Chinese immigrants found work building the Central Pacific Railroad, the western section of the Transcontinental Railroad. Construction began in Sacramento in 1863 and progressed eastward. When the tracks got to the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, 1,900 of the 2,000 Irish workers left for the mines. But thousands of laborers would be needed to drill and blast rock, even the grade, and lay track for the rest of the way to Utah. Charles Crocker, chief railroad contractor for the Central Pacific, suggested the recruitment of Chinese workers. Thanks to the gold rush, there were 15,000 in Northern California. Foreman James Strobridge was doubtful. Each rail was 24 feet long and weighed 532 pounds. The Chinese were too small, too weak for the work. But Crocker had no doubts. He hit back with, quote, Did they not build the Chinese wall? the biggest piece of masonry in the world, end quote. A trial of 50 Chinese workers proved Crocker's confidence to be well-placed. Chief Engineer Samuel S. Montague reported on their work in December 1865. It became apparent early in the season that the amount of labor likely to be required during the summer could only be supplied by the employment of the Chinese element of our population. Some distrust was at first felt regarding the capacity of this class for the service required, but the experiment has proved eminently successful. They are faithful and industrious, and under proper supervision, soon become skillful in the performance of their duties. Many of them are becoming very expert in drilling, blasting, and other departments of rock work. Not only did they perform the work expertly, they were fast. They were able to lay 10 miles of track per day. According to the National Park Service, this speed record still stands. Two years later, Charles's older brother, Edwin, reported continuing satisfaction with their work. Edwin was the Central Pacific's legal counsel and said, quote, Without them, it would be impossible to go on with the work. I can assure you, the Chinese are moving the earth and rock rapidly. 
they prove nearly equal to white men in the amount of labor they perform and are far more reliable, end quote. For all this efficiency, the Chinese were paid a third less than white workers. After a strike, their pay was eventually increased to match their white counterparts, $30 a month in gold. But unlike white workers, whose boarding was paid for by the railroad company, Chinese workers had to pay for their own housing. They also paid for their own food, but their diets and practices actually kept them healthier. For example, boiling water for tea protected them from waterborne disease. Tea also didn't have the deleterious effects of alcohol, which people often drank as an alternative to bad water. Daily bathing and frequent washing of their clothes also helped the Chinese to prevent the spread of disease. In another two years, the Central Pacific and Union Pacific Lines met at Promontory Summit in Utah. A cross-country trip could now be completed in days instead of months. The so-called Wedding of the Rails took place on May 10, 1869. In the center of the iconic photograph of the event, Samuel Montague is shaking hands with Union Pacific Chief Engineer Grenville Dodge. Dozens of men stand on either side. Though Chinese men built 90% of the Central Pacific section, not a single man in the photograph is Chinese. Sadly, according to multiple sources, including the Library of Congress and Stanford University, we don't have any first-person memoirs of Chinese immigrants who worked on the railroads. A decent amount were literate in their native language, and some spoke English. In 1876 alone, more than 250,000 letters were carried between China, Japan, and the United States. Gordon Chang, Stanford professor and author of Ghosts of Gold Mountain, proposes a few reasons for the absence of first-hand narratives. Many of the villages from which the workers hailed were destroyed by unrest, revolution, and war. Their American home, San Francisco, was devastated by an earthquake and fire in 1906. And amid the growing hostility against Chinese immigrants in the United States, their communities in particular were destroyed by arsonists and looters. The story of the Chinese contribution to the Transcontinental Railroad is discussed beautifully on the podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I highly recommend it, and there's a link in the show notes. After the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, some Chinese workers returned to their homeland. But most stayed in the United States, continuing to work in railroad construction or finding work on California farms. Others started their own businesses. Chinese immigration rose year after year. From 4,000 in 1850 to 35,000 in 1860, it had almost doubled by the next census in 1870. And they didn't all stay in California. By 1870, 23% of America's Chinese residents were outside of the Golden State. They lived in New England, the Southwest, and the South. Meanwhile, some states of the defeated Confederacy faced a labor crisis. Still protected by Congressional Reconstruction and federal troops, Blacks enjoyed the franchise and unprecedented agency. They were even elected to public office by the hundreds, 
reflecting its population, South Carolina was the first state to have a majority Black legislature. While some African Americans chose to work on the same plantations for wages, others left and never came back. Once again, Chinese labor could be the solution. An 1869 editorial in the Vicksburg Times complained, quote, Emancipation has spoiled the Negro and carried him away from fields of agriculture. Our prosperity depends entirely upon the recovery of lost ground, and we therefore say, let the coolies come, and we will take the chance of Christianizing them. End quote. Chinese workers were brought in to work on southern plantations, and as it turned out, they were spoiled too. Some even attempted to revolt. In 1873, the Boulevard County Times reported that, out of 200 Chinese immigrants who had been recruited to work on Louisiana plantations, not one remained. Some had been shot and wounded or killed when they attempted to revolt against their working conditions. One Chinese recruiting agent who visited a plantation was met by his countrymen who tried to lynch him, so enraged were they by his false promises about their working conditions. That same year, the Panic of 1873, set off a series of economic crises, followed by deflation and a depression. As unemployment rose and wages fell, political and labor leaders scapegoated Chinese immigrants. Though praised for their frugality and industry in the 1850s, by the 60s and the 70s, they were pariahs. Not only were they, the Chinese, guilty of driving down wages, they were, according to the New York Times in 1865, quote, befouled with all the social vices, with no knowledge or appreciation of free institutions or constitutional liberty, with heathenish souls and heathenish propensities, whose character and habits and modes of thought are firmly fixed by the consolidating influences of ages upon ages, end quote. In his inaugural address in 1867, California Governor Henry Height acclaimed the opportunities that the railroads afforded to white workers while vilifying the very people who built a whole third of it. The governor's version of history is interesting, to say the least. According to Height, the country was built for white men, by white men. No man is worthy of the name patriot or statesman who countenances a policy which is opposed to the interests of the free white laboring and industrial classes. They constitute the body of the people. They sustain our free institutions. They carry forward our great public enterprises. They dig our canals, they build our railroads, cultivate our fields, explore the recesses of the earth in search of the precious metals. They fight our battles in war. It was their stubborn valor and self-sacrificing patriotism which in the late war saved the government from destruction. Their welfare ought to be guarded with jealous care by statesmen and legislators, for it is upon them that we must rely for the preservation of the government. An additional influx of Chinese to compete with white laboring men in all industrial departments ought to be discouraged by all lawful means. 
for the sake of some supposed advantage of cheap labor, such influx would inflict a curse upon posterity for all time. It would tend to discourage that immigration of white laborers from Europe and the eastern states, which is our great need and desire. It would be a short-sighted and selfish policy on the part of men of capital. The completion of the Pacific Railroad will afford the laboring people of Europe and the eastern states an opportunity to remove to this coast expeditiously at a moderate cost, and they will flock hither if the avenues of labor are not filled by Mongolians. The lack of labor will then cease to be seriously felt. What we desire for the permanent benefit of California is a population of white men who will make this state their home, bring up families here, and meet the responsibilities and discharge the duties of free men. We ought not to desire an effect population of Asiatics for a free state like ours. Remember how Chinese customs prevented the spread of disease among railroad workers? Well, San Francisco health officers blamed them for the smallpox epidemic of 1875 and 76. The city health officer ordered every house in Chinatown to be thoroughly fumigated. When these measures failed to abate the epidemic, the health officer said it was because of, quote, the presence in our midst of 30,000 as a class of unscrupulous, lying, and treacherous Chinamen who have disregarded our sanitary laws, concealed, and are concealing their cases of smallpox, end quote. Hui Kin immigrated to the United States in 1868 at the age of 14. He worked as a houseboy, then later labored on a dairy farm. He eventually converted to Christianity and became the first Chinese person to be ordained to Christian ministry in New York's Chinatown. In his 80s, Kin wrote about this violent time for the Chinese in America. The sudden change of public sentiment toward our people in those days was an interesting illustration of mob psychology such as sociologists are familiar with. The useful and steady Chinese worker became overnight the mysterious Chinaman, an object of unknown dread. When I landed, the trouble was already brewing, but the climax did not come until 1876-77. I understand that several causes contributed to the anti-Chinese riots. It was a period of general economic depression in the western states, brought about by drought, crop failures, and reduced output of the gold mines. And on top of it came a presidential campaign. The Chinese issue was to American politics of those days as the prohibition issue is to American politics of today. There were long processions at night with big torch lights and lanterns carrying the slogan, the Chinese must go, and mass meetings where fiery tongues flayed the Chinese bogey. Those were the days of Dennis Kearney and his fellow agitators, known as sandlot orators on account of their vehement denunciations in open-air meetings. To Kearney was attributed the statement which showed to what extremes political demagogues will go. Quote, There is no means left to clear the Chinamen but to swing them into eternity by their own cues. 
for there is no rope long enough in all America wherewith to strangle 400 millions of Chinamen, end quote. The Chinese were in a pitiable condition in those days. We were simply terrified. We kept indoors after dark for fear of being shot in the back. Children spit upon us as we passed by and called us rats. However, there was one consolation. The people who employed us never turned against us, and we went on quietly with our work until the public frenzy subsided. Dennis Kearney was an Irish-American leader of the Working Men's Party of California. In his incendiary speeches, he decried capitalism, politicians, and the press, and ended his speeches, quote, and whatever happens, the Chinese must go, end quote. Then, in 1871, at least 18 Chinese immigrants were lynched after a white man was accidentally shot during a gunfight between two Huiguan over a kidnapped woman. The rioters grabbed and dragged their victims to multiple makeshift gallows, one being a freight wagon turned on its side. The victims included Dr. Chi Long Tong, who was also known as Jean. Dr. Tong was well-respected by both white and Chinese residents of the city. He begged for his life and offered his captors the gold ring he was wearing and his life savings, which may have exceeded $2,000. The men tore off his pants looking for the money, and before he was hanged, someone shot him in the mouth. Meanwhile, looters ransacked Chinese buildings searching for valuables. One merchant reported losing $4,000 in gold. Estimates of the total losses for the community reach $70,000. The following day, white sightseers toured the carnage while many Chinese residents fled the city. Nine men were convicted of manslaughter, the grand jury declaring, We find that a feud has long existed between the Chinese companies in this city that on the 24th day of October, members of the rival companies, having provided themselves with arms, met in a public street and commenced firing at one another. Their shots were turned upon two policemen and their assistants, who were making an effort to quell the disturbance. In this effort, one citizen was killed, one police officer and one citizen shot and wounded. A great number of shots were fired by the Chinese upon the streets and from the doors of their houses, at the officers and others who hastened to the officers' aid. The confusion created a panic which opened the way for evildoers, and in the excitement that followed, the worst elements of society not only disgraced civilization by their acts, but in their savage treatment of the unoffending human beings, their eagerness for pillage and bloodthirstiness exceeded the most barbarous races of men. We believe we should be wanting in our duty if we should fail to present to this court the painful conclusion to which we are forced, that the officers of this county as well as of this city, whose duty it is to preserve the peace and to arrest those who are violating the law, were deplorably inefficient in the performance of their duty during the scenes of confusion and bloodshed which disgraced our city and has cast a reproach upon the people of Los Angeles County. Had these officers performed this duty, this grand jury would not have been called upon to devote weeks to the investigation of the matter, nor would there have been any riotous acts on that night to stain the records of this county.
However, the California Supreme Court later overturned the convictions on a technicality. The harassment and abuse continued as state and local legislatures passed laws targeting the Chinese. For example, San Francisco's Q Ordinance of 1873 prohibited men from wearing long braids, which was a Chinese custom. Finally, in 1882, American hostility culminated with the passage of the Exclusion Act. By now, there were over 100,000 Chinese people in the United States. The law banning their further immigration begins, quote, Whereas in the opinion of the government of the United States, the coming of Chinese laborers to this country endangers the good order of certain localities within the territory thereof, end quote, and it barred both skilled and unskilled Chinese laborers from entering the country. The following classes of immigrants were exempt. Merchants and their families, diplomats, tourists, students, and returning laborers. It also forbade Chinese immigrants from becoming American citizens. Over the next 20 years, more laws were passed to reduce the number of Chinese people coming into the country and to otherwise circumscribe their lives. For example, the Geary Act, passed in 1892, required people of Chinese descent to carry photo identification and proof of status at all times, even if they were U.S. citizens. In the year before enforcement of the law was to begin, the six companies posted notices telling Chinese immigrants not to register. In San Francisco and L.A., people ripped up their registration cards in protest. But the Supreme Court upheld the Geary Act in 1893 in Fang Yuting versus United States. Two years before the Exclusion Act was signed into law, the ethnic Chinese population in the United States was 0.21%. In 1890, it was 0.17%, and the downward trend continued until 1920 when it reached a low of 0.08%. The Chinese population stayed at about that level for another 30 years. But you know what happened when Chinese immigration was restricted? American companies looked for laborers in Japan. And then anti-Japanese hostility grew. In 1907, Japan and the United States reached a gentleman's agreement, wherein Japan voluntarily limited emigration and the United States allowed entry for spouses of immigrants who were already here. But the agreement but the agreement didn't decrease the Japanese population in this country. It went from about 85,000 in 1900 to over 150,000 in 1910 and 220,000 in 1920. That year, in a report to Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby, California Governor William Stevens complained that Japanese immigration had become, quote, an even more serious problem than Chinese immigration, end quote. While he appreciates how successful the Exclusion Act has been in reducing the, quote, oriental influx, end quote, Stevens worries that, quote, by their unquestioned industry and application, and by standards and methods, both in connection with hours of labor and standards of living, have gradually developed to a control of many of our important agricultural industries, end quote. Within 10 years, he reports, 
Japanese immigrants had increased their land holdings by 413%. The value of their holdings had increased tenfold to almost $70 million. He was also mad that 80 to 85% of the country's Japanese population was in his state. As I read his grievances, I remember the U.S. policy of Native American assimilation and the pressure on that group to adopt individualism and private land ownership. Stevens seems to be saying, the Japanese are doing the American thing, but they're doing it too well. The problem is not that the Japanese won't assimilate, it's that they're not white. So now, with some of the history of Asian immigration, we can understand a little better how Angel Island came to be. The main point of entry for Asians coming to the United States was the city of San Francisco. Prior to 1910, new arrivals were housed in a two-story shed at the wharf of the Pacific Mail Steamship Company. These quarters on the San Francisco waterfront eventually proved too unsanitary and inadequate. So, in 1905, 20 acres of Angel Island were transferred from the War Department to the Commerce and Labor Department for the construction of an immigration station. Of the 15 islands in San Francisco Bay, Angel Island is the largest. One advantage of the new location was its distance from San Francisco. Immigrants were unable to communicate with family or associates in the city. As an island, like nearby Alcatraz, it was also escape-proof. The compound would have a wharf, administration building, hospital, and detention and detention center, with guard tower and outdoor area. When ships of immigrants came into the bay, officials boarded the ships and separated passengers by nationality. For the most part, first and second class passengers, and Europeans, were allowed to enter the city immediately. Asians, as well as Mexicans, Russians, and other groups, were ferried to Angel Island. Upon disembarking at the pier, new arrivals were taken to the administration building. Men were taken to one area, women and children to another. They were subjected to medical exams, during which they had to disrobe. They were also tested for parasitic infections. For contrast, 75 to 80 percent of Ellis Island exams did not require any removal of clothing. People who were called aside for further exams disrobed only partially. If the immigrants failed the exams, they could be hospitalized at their own expense or deported. Otherwise, they were assigned a detention dormitory and waited to be interrogated by the Board of Special Inquiry. Remember, only certain occupations of Chinese immigrants were allowed into the country. Children of U.S. citizens were also permitted. But in 1906, municipal records were destroyed in the fire that followed the San Francisco earthquake. So, the city's residents could claim proof of their citizenship had been destroyed in the fire. Then, when they returned to their villages in China, they would bring back their so-called children. People paid handsomely for these slots and the fraudulent documents. An entire village might pool its resources to send one of their own to Gamsan, or Gold Mountain, hoping that he would return and share the wealth with the village. To expose so-called paper sons, the immigration investigators asked about minute details of the applicant's 
family history, his home, and his village. There would be two immigrant inspectors, a stenographer, and a translator when needed. Steve Kwok's father was a paper son, and Kwok had heard the story of his father's interrogation. On February 6, 1929, at the age of 17, on the ship's manifest he was listed as being 15 years old, his paper son age, Jim Fong, a paper son, arrived in San Francisco, California, on the ship SS President McKinley. While crossing the Pacific Ocean, my father spent the time on board the SS President McKinley, studying the 200-page documents his father had purchased from a Fong family. He memorized the layout of the village, the layout and design of his paper home, including such things as what room he slept in and how many steps there were in front of his paper home. He memorized details and pictures of his fake brothers and parents. Dad went through three weeks of intense interrogations on Angel Island by U.S. immigration officials to determine if he was a true son of a citizen. On February 27, 1929, he was permitted to enter the United States as a U.S. citizen based on the citizenship papers that his father purchased in China. The transcript and details of these interrogations are stored at the Regional National Archives in San Bruno, California. An interesting note, when the interrogation board signed off on recognizing Jim as son of Fong Man, his paper father, the meeting minutes stated that, quote, a very favorable aspect of this case is the marked resemblance between the applicant and his alleged brother, and I also note a considerable resemblance between the two boys, dad and his paper father, and Fong Man. I believe that the evidence submitted in this case reasonably establishes that the applicant is a blood son of Fong Man, a recognized U.S. citizen, and I accordingly move that he be admitted as of the status claimed. End quote. Our family has always noted that Dad did look more like his paper brothers than his real brothers. The investigators also brought in family members who already lived in the United States to corroborate the immigrants' stories. Sometimes the relatives lived in San Francisco, but they also lived as far away as Chicago and New York. The whole process took typically anywhere between two weeks and six months. If the application was rejected and appealed, the immigrant could be in detention for years. Almost 10% of the detainees were ultimately deported. Rather than return to their villages in disgrace or overwhelmed by the interminable wait in detention, some detainees committed suicide. The detention center was like prison in many ways. Dormitory doors were locked, and detainees could leave only if supervised by an escort guard. Incoming and outgoing packages and letters were inspected. Visitors were not allowed unless a detainee's case had cleared. While they waited, some of the Chinese detainees read books, knit, or sewed. Some poured their heartaches and aspirations into poetry, which they inscribed on the wooden walls of their barracks. While most of them were young men between 14 and 18, it is believed that the few older and better educated men wrote these poems. According to the Angel Island Foundation, the poems are in the style of classic Chinese poetry with traditional allegories and historical references. 
In the show notes, there's a link to the poems being read in their native Taishanese. Most writers didn't sign their names. Imprisoned in the wooden building day after day, my freedom withheld. How can I bear to talk about it? I look to see who is happy, but they only sit quietly. I am anxious and depressed and cannot fall asleep. The days are long and the bottle constantly empty. My sad mood, even so, is not dispelled. Nights are long and the pillow cold. Who can pity my loneliness? After experiencing such loneliness and sorrow, why not just return home and plow the fields? A few poets did include their birthplaces and other personal details. This poem, written September 4, 1911, is signed by Lee from Toishan District. Sitting alone in the customs office, how could my heart not ache? Had my family not been poor, I would not have traveled far away from home. It was my elder brother who urged me to embark on a voyage to this shore. The black devil here is unjust. He forces the Chinese to clean the floor. Two meals a day are provided, but I wonder, when will I be homeward bound? Another writer from Toishan District imagines his wife's perspective. My wife's admonishment. We are poor, so you're leaving home to seek wealth. Keep hold of propriety while on this journey. Never pick wildflowers along the road, for you have your own wife at home. Before you depart, I admonish you a thousand times. Don't let my words just whistle past your ears. Don't worry about us. Be diligent and frugal, and two years hence, return to sweep the ancestors' tombs. Your wife and children haven't a thing to wear. Not half a cup of rice can be scooped from the pot. Our house and rooms are dilapidated. Our housewares are worn, and the curtains torn. In the past, you did nothing but gamble. You never thought of me and my flowing tears. You are fortunate your elder brother has paid the taxes. Always remember your great debt to him. Like most of his countrymen, Lee was in the United States without a wife. The Exclusion Acts allowed only a small class of powerful and affluent merchants to bring their families into the country. As with the paper sons, documents were falsified to bring women here. But they weren't brought here to work on the mines or railroads. I'll discuss their fate in my next episode. The music that accompanied the poetry was performed by the Celestial Ion Project. The American Epistles theme music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Oliveira for their monthly support. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.